Well, frustrated by the lack of information known about women who made a living on the New Zealand goldfields in the 1800s, Canterbury Museum researcher Dr Julia Bradshaw went in search of them. She's uncovered some cracking stories about women who reinvented themselves, often becoming successful businesswomen, cashing in on those miners with money to spend. Julia's giving a talk called Adjustable Marriages, Relationships, Divorce and Bigamy on the Goldfields this week at Kate Shepherd House in Christchurch. She says she's determined to tell the stories of these overlooked women. The more I learned about the goldfields and I was obviously always really interested in what women were doing the more I was kind of getting angry about the fact that they'd been often misrepresented they were either wives or they were prostitutes and of course there was a there's a huge variety of women on the goldfields they were both of those but there was just an enormous variety of everything in between and a lot of businesswomen which isn't very well recognized at all. Where did you go searching for information about them? It's easier to research women who got in trouble with the law because they turn up in um, police gazettes and often the court cases are reported in the newspapers. But also there's other really useful files like divorce files, um, records of business, um, particularly in the newspapers. But often then you can start to, you find an interesting woman and you can start to sort of drill down more into their lives and also tap into family history resources because family historians have done an amazing amount of work and it's just kind of gathering it up sometimes. Do you get a sense then that there were women who used this opportunity to reinvent themselves? I mean, I can't help thinking of the luminaries actually, but was that the case that they saw an opportunity to start again? I I guess particularly those women who'd come to Aotearoa New Zealand in hope of of a better, different life? Most definitely, and that, that's the exciting thing I think about what I'm finding is that women, uh, they could and they did reinvent themselves, so they might change their history when they arrived in New Zealand or, or even move to a different town in New Zealand. They also often change their names, they might change their marital status if, they, if it was more useful to be a widow to explain um, a child when you weren't married. There was, there was all sorts of things that they did really quite effectively and because the goldfields were kind of unique and that people were moving around from rush to rush so your neighbours didn't know your backstory, they didn't know who you were, they just had to accept what you told them. So there was a lot more opportunity for women I think on the goldfields. Given that, that time, was divorce common and what about bigamy? Was that common too as part of what you were just saying that women were able to, to invent a new backstory for themselves? Yes, well, divorce was really difficult to get and it wasn't obtainable in New Zealand until a law was passed in 1867 and that didn't come into practice till about 1869. But it was incredibly difficult for women. For men to get a divorce from their wife, they only needed to prove their wife's adultery. But for women, they had to... There could be a husband's adultery, but there also needed to be other things such as cruelty bigamy, sodomy, rape, there was a whole lot of other things that they had to prove one of those as well as the adultery. A man's adultery wasn't enough. So it was really difficult for women and also obviously quite expensive that all the cases had to be heard at the Supreme Court in Wellington. So not many women went down that road and if you did leave your husband and later on met someone else and you did want to marry them, then bigamy was was a way of dealing with that. And I think bigamy was a lot more common in New Zealand, probably in other countries, certainly in Australia, than we've realised because only very few cases 
came to the attention of the authorities, it's really the work of family historians that's, that's showing how common it was. Julia, you mentioned that there were women who thrived as businesswomen, that there were real opportunities for uh, the savvy and the ambitious um, women there. What, what are a couple of the, the women who've come to your attention who really made a success of themselves business-wise? This Elizabeth Langford, um, who was one of the th- early hotel op- owners in Queenstown. She arrived before Queenstown really wasn't even a town. She started working in hotels. She gradually built up an empire. She owned quite a few hotels and quite a lot of land. She came to my attention. She she was always Elizabeth Langford when she was in Queenstown, but eventually um, it came to my attention she'd married in London to a guy called Thomas Norrington, and she couldn't stand him. She said it was she decided it was best just to leave England and come to New Zealand and find a job. So she did that, but Thomas Norrington followed her to New Zealand. And then because of the way the married the property laws worked at the time, he was able to claim all of her business and property. So I think that in the end she paid him off and he disappears from the picture again. But she's she's a really um, wily woman that I'm quite fond of. And another woman is Sarah Ann Plummer, who was married to Hartley, I believe Hartley, one of the famous discoverers of gold in Otago. But somewhere along the line, she lost him. I'm not quite sure what happened to him. But then she went on and started a quite a sizable hotel at Glenorchy and subsequently married there. Perhaps bigamously, perhaps not, I don't know. But again, she's, she's quite an inspirational kind of woman. I mean, that is a huge achievement to be able to get the capital and then to be able to run a hotel in a very male, volatile situation like that. Having said that, of course, guaranteed customers, I guess that's one plus of running a hotel in a gold field. Definitely. And I think as long as the woman had enough presence and perhaps more maternal bearing, I don't know, but if if she had the respect of male customers, they would be... Uh, I imagine incredibly helpful and loyal, and because women were in short supply, they they were very fond of some of these hotel keepers. And I don't I mean in a platonic kind of way that they were very well respected in the community. Did most of these women come from the UK, or did they come from around the world? Most of them from the UK. A lot of them had experience on the goldfields in Australia, and perhaps had left a husband behind there as well, and decided to follow the gold rushes to New Zealand and and make a fortune, basically. Oh, very similar prospects, although earning their money in a different way to the, to the guys coming to the gold field seeking a fortune. I mean, it's all about hopes and dreams, isn't it? But their way of making a living was more certain than the gold miners. Yes, there's, a, there's only a few records of women um, being involved in gold mining itself, although, again, because it was seen as just not not being the the done thing, it was it's quite likely it happened a bit more often and was never reported in the newspapers. They favoured having a hotel. That was that was really the best way. I mean, I think everyone wanted to have a hotel on the goldfields. There was so much money to be made from selling alcohol. But they did all sorts of other things as well, accommodation, bakeries, all sorts of crafts and some really quite surprising occupations. But definitely the hotel keepers were the, was the thing to be. I wondered if any of them were performers, you know, dancers, actors, that kind of thing. I think there were some acting troops that went to the goldfields. 
yes, there were. They definitely had. It was entertainment was was a big deal. The miners came to town and they wanted to to have a good time. They wanted to go to a bathing house. They wanted to stock up on supplies and they wanted to be entertained. So there was definitely visiting entertainers. And also some women made a living out of being a dance girl. So they would, often they would also be working as barmaids, but they would receive money to dance with the miners, to encourage the miners to spend longer in the hotels and to drink more. And a lot of, um, sometimes in the past, people have thought dance girls was just the equivalent of being a prostitute, but it wasn't. There was actually, there were tiers of sort of barmaid, dance girl, and then prostitute would be lower than that. So there was, and maybe, and some people probably moved between the tiers, but there was definitely kind of a, an order to these things. You've sent us some fantastic portraits. We've spoken about Elizabeth and Sarah Ann. What about Mary Ann Hardman? What was her story? Well, Mary Ann Hardman is, she's really special to me. I always call her beautiful Mary Ann. But Mary Ann was one of the people that she started me on the road of researching bigamy in New Zealand. And it was, the photo was donated to the Lakes District Museum where I was working at the time by a descendant. And it was it was she who put me on, Mary Heron was her name, it was she who put me on to the fact that her ancestor had married bigamously. And then together we kind of started researching and, and it's just a fantastic story. So Mary Ann had married her first husband in Australia and then they both came to New Zealand and they set up at the Shotover River. And then she ran off with his business partner and had 11 children with him. She married him, so she married him bigamously. Meanwhile, Charles Jennings, her first husband, he went back to Australia and then he married again. So that was a bigamous marriage as well. And then Marianne's second husband died and she married again. So she had two bigamous marriages. But what is quite astonishing about the story is that the family members all kept in touch. So the children, some of them went between New Zealand and Australia, particularly the older ones she'd had with her first husband. So it's, it's really quite an amazing story. And I was very fortunate to find on Ancestry a photograph of Marianne when she's in her 70s. And it's, it's just a really nice sense of closure for me. But um, I, I have lots of thoughts about how the families explain to each other or to their relatives or friends, rather, who these visiting relatives from New Zealand were. As you were saying before, though, if women are changing their names, that's where it must get really gnarly for you, trying to figure out a bigamous marriage. So what are some of the clues? How have you managed to figure out that that the woman's original name might have been this and then she perhaps married bigamously under a a different name? Does that happen often? No, what is quite interesting is that mostly they, the, the women who change their names are not the ones who are marrying bigamously. They tend to use their own names or perhaps revert to a maiden name, which does make it a bit easier to trace. The woman who use who change their names or use aliases tend to be the women who end up in court a lot or it was a common practice to if you were living with someone you weren't married to then you just adopted their surname as your own so that you know it appeared respectable that you were Mrs Tyree when in fact you were Miss so-and-so and so that can make it a bit complicated um, and, and certainly, I think, has fooled some family historians who are sure that the couple is married, but they can't find a marriage certificate anywhere. And it's just that some couples never 
formally went through a marriage ceremony. They just started, the woman started using the man's surname. Was it still easier, I imagine it was, to be in a relationship in the goldfields than to be a single woman? Well, it all depends on who you were married to. There were some women who were much worse off being married because their husbands were really, to be honest, quite monstrous in some cases. Um, If you had a good husband, that was probably much preferable to being single. But then someone who, some woman who was single made a fantastic success of the goldfields. And indeed, some of the miners who married the, eventually married these women, it was a really good match for them because the single woman had built up often quite a good hotel keeping business and were really quite wealthy. And this um, came to my attention when in, I think it's in the late 1860s, the Nelson Provincial Council decided that single women weren't allowed to run a hotel. And so you can see in the intentions to marry registers for places like Charleston and around in the Buller district, there's a sudden increase in the number of female hotel keepers marrying. And they're often marrying minors and relatively simple men. So I think those men made a fantastic match. Julia, would you be interested in hearing from other people who may have similar stories? You know, I love it when our listeners can get involved and, um, you know, there's every chance that some people listening out there may have something on their family tree because genealogy is so popular, of course, that may contribute to your research. Is this ongoing research for you? Yes, certainly. I'm, I'm planning, to, I'm hoping to pull together a lot of my research and produce a book about women on the goldfields. So I'm certainly interested in hearing about any stories about bigamy and divorce and businesswomen or any kind of employment that relates to the goldfields period in the South Island. That would be fabulous, yes. Dr Julia Bradshaw, if you have information you think would be useful, you can email her at infoline at canterburymuseum.com where she's Senior Curator of Human History.